Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Health Points where we talk about everything gamification and health. I'm Ben Wilkins and my co-host is Pete Jenkins. Hi everyone. And today we have Michael. Professor of Dementia Research at the University of East Anglia and the co-creator of Sea Hero Quest, a game designed to gather data on people's navigational strategies, which is one of the first skills lost in dementia. Michael's background is as a neuroscientist and his research group's work involves using pioneering techniques to identify the spatial or navigational issues in dementia and how these impact on people's outdoor activities such as driving and walking safely. As these navigational challenges can occur long before a diagnosis of dementia and before the traditional impacts of memory loss arise, Michael's work is looking at how games can improve diagnosis, disease progressing, progression tracking and symptom management in dementia. Michael, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it would be great to begin with your background in looking at uh, the role of games in dementia research. Yeah, um, I think, you know, my background, um, as you said, I'm a neuroscientist, very interested and have been working in the field of dementia for yeah, a bit over 20 years. And um, I think we've been always very interested in uh, how do we measure things in people. And um, it becomes always, a, I think, you know, it's always an issue, I guess, in terms of how do we get really what people's symptoms are instead of just giving them standard tests or ask them in clinics? And um, that's how I came to gamification, which actually, I don't know, happened in uh, 2015. So it's a while ago now, um, where I attended a, a workshop of the Wellcome Trust, which is one of the big charities in the UK. And um, the workshop was on gamification in science. And I thought, well, you know, lovely, it's a half day off. I just go there, have a nice day off, a half day off. Uh, but of course, as always, as these things have happened, this event literally changed my life. <laughs> it opened up all kinds of avenues and opened my eyes to gamification and literally had this light bulb moment of thinking, why is nobody doing this in healthcare or in research or in dementia? And it just set a lot of things off in my mind. Fantastic. In that case, moving to kind of see here a quest. Where did that come from as an idea? Were there any guiding principles in the game development in the way that it looks and behaves today? Yeah, I think so. So see here a quest was one of the outcomes of this in a way workshop. It really started with this because at that time we were looking, we were very interested in, uh, yeah, as you say, people's navigation behavior, which is still one of our main aspects. So when people think about dementia and specifically Alzheimer's disease, the most common form of dementia, um, then they think about memory problems, which are very common in people who develop the disease. But we want to ideally diagnose people much earlier. And then these navigation um, deficits, we've identified them that they happen much earlier, but they're quite subtle. And uh, so we wanted always to create a kind of large data set actually of healthy people. And we wanted to have that to compare then patients or people who are at risk of the disease against this. And the gamification, well, the games element came into this that, of course, <laughs> virtually many, many games use navigation as a kind of natural aspect within games. Anything from, you know, very simple 2D games to very, very complex 3D games. And uh, we really wanted to, to have this kind of thought, then could we actually develop a game 
which could measure people's navigation behavior within a game. And so um, at that time, I was only aware there was a there was another game out there called uh, NeuroRacer, uh, which was developed by um, somebody in the US, who he developed that as a kind of game for children with ADHD. And that was really a game which incorporated as well the science. And it was the only one I was really aware of where where people really use gameplay actually to measure and then potentially to influence, I guess, um, people or patients' behavior. So that's that was our starting point. But there wasn't really much other guidance. Oh, there was a lot on ga- there was already quite a bit on gamification. But we were very clear from the beginning. We didn't want to gamify a scientific task because a lot of, you know, I do that all the time with our tasks. We do that these days, and that's fairly simple. Instead, we wanted to create really a game which was the science was embedded in it. So, so I guess we made it we made it just much much harder for ourselves, frankly. <laughs> well, can, can we dive into that? Why do you think that was a better approach than just gamifying the task? Well, yes and no, obviously. I think that's the challenge. I think, um, so if this would have been a game for patients, I think I would have gamified the task because it would have been much, much simpler, much more straightforward. But because we wanted to create this massive um, data collection, we thought, well, games, especially casual games, are so big. Uh, at that time, they were still, it was a much smaller market. Now it's even bigger that um if we kind of have it as a real casual game, people might be much happier to do it and you will get a much larger population. But you have to downsides because a lot of the kind of scientific world is still quite suspicious about Sea Hero Quest, that it's just a game, but it's not proper science, obviously. But we spent an awful lot of time on the science behind it. And actually, the first few years after we had the first data from Sea Hero Quest, we really just spent on validation studies to show to people that this is valid data. And it's only really recently that really the exciting things are coming out because we can prove to people now this is, it is a valid approach and you can use really a game to use that. But as I said, it's really much more for people who have, who are healthy or are at risk of disease, but I'm not sure I would use it for actual uh, people with dementia because it would be maybe too confusing for them or we would have to design a much, quite a different game i guess but the gamification would be easier so in terms of the numbers now of see here requests i mean last check and i had over a hundred thousand two hundred thousand people had, had used it How, what numbers are you up to now in terms of the total number of people that have played the game and why do you think it's been so successful why do you think so many people are playing it well this was i think the success was that we really designed it as a casual game and not as a gamified task i think that's that really made that was the key to its success, I believe. <laughs> but um, at the time, we really didn't know. And the funders, well, what do you expect for sample size? And as always, when the funder asks you, everybody sits up straight and you think, oh, dear, now we have to give a number. So we gave, we thought, oh, well, the big epidemiological studies have 100,000 people. So we just say 100,000. <laughs> That's it. Um but of course, we completely underestimated the games world um, because we collected 100,000 people in the first two days after the game was released. It was just absolutely enormous. That's super cool. Yes, it is incredible. It is incredible. And as always, you know, you could see it kind of had this massive launch and then it kind of had its own snowball effect. Um, 
which is good and bad, and we can talk about that because you have very little control, of course, in the end, how it's going. So the game was actually targeted towards Western Europe in the main instance, and we had only, uh, you know, some selective languages. Um, but then, as I said, it just took over. And so in the end, we, we closed the game and we had uh, around 4.3 million people's data. Yeah, so it is an absolute, it is one of the largest data sets in dementia, <laughs> which is bizarre that it became so big. How long did you keep it open for? We kept it open, I think, uh, for, uh, was it nine months or up to a year, I think, yeah. And we have still people emailing us and asking if they can play it again or <laughs> they want to do it. And we had people playing it several times, um, you know. So we have also, this is the, which we, again, at that time, we didn't think about all these aspects. We learned so much from this because we have also so much data in terms of how people learn or improve their performance over time. But we've never designed it for that. We thought it would be a one-off for most people. Um, Yes, and I think so now we have actually we have a kind of a legacy version, but that legacy version is now hosted by Alzheimer's Research UK and it's really only for research studies then. So research studies can still use it and they can register and can use it in any kind of cohorts they want to use it. And that was really important for us that we keep it um, open for people to use. If you're a researcher, I'm afraid not for the public, but that also the data, we made it open access. And that was a key aspect for us co-creators um, because once it became so big, this was an issue. We had several very large offers for the data from industry, which we, well, you could either say wisely or foolishly said no to, but um, we, we thought it's more for the benefit of everybody if we keep it open access. But it's, it's yeah, we could, we could argue about that, I guess. But we all we all agreed on that, and that was really important for us in particular that we wanted to really improve the diagnosis of dementia, and therefore it's not only us using the data, but we make it available to any scientist or any clinician who wants to use it. They're more than welcome to it. I guess this is really interesting to hear your perspective because we also yeah, other people we interview are also designers or kind of leaders or CEOs of gamification companies. And I guess it's just so important, the purity of research, the importance of doing research for the benefit of your humanity, the benefit for the public is preserved. Um, so I completely support your decision, even though arguably was it wise or foolish when you look back on it sometimes. What I would love to know now is you've had so much data, you've been able to make these data sets open access. What are the key clinical findings that are coming out now? You've mentioned that people with dementia kind of weren't to play it, but actually early stage pre-dementia, that's where there's a lot of benefits. So what have you found through that, those data sets? Yeah, I think at the beginning, it was virtually impossible for us to publish this data because nobody believed us it was validated. So we spent an awful lot of time on publishing validation studies. So very boring things. But now it's really coming out. So what we can actually can do, the, the beauty of having such an enormous data set is that it allows you this personalized diagnosis much better so we can really stratify for people uh, what they uh, how they should perform according to and we can stratify people to the country they come from their age their education their uh, gender or sex and that's really important and so not only can we say uh, like most studies they would look at they would have a population maybe of a hundred or few hundred people um, which they say, okay, we compare them all the 60 to 80 year olds and you perform like this. Now we can say, okay, we have several thousand people who are 67 exactly, are male, are from that country, and we compare you 
only to those people who have the same age. And what we can see is that with that, we can actually identify people. So what we've done, we've done our studies in people who are at genetic risk, who we know are at increased risk of dementia. And we also looked at lifestyle risk factors. And we can identify those people much earlier. So because if we plot them against the distribution on the quest, they're far more off that distribution. And at the moment, we're looking actually into whether the distance from the distribution actually tells you already how close they are to the disease onset. So that's the power, I think, of the data. So I always say there is an irony in there that one needs very big or large data to actually make it much more personalized for the people. That's the, it's a real kind of contradiction nearly, but it's, that's really the key aspect. And for me, games and gamification are the obvious parts to play with that because it's so huge. Well, that, that reminds me, because people can't generally play it, can you describe the essence of the gameplay to us? <laughs> yeah. Sure, I think you're yeah, very happy. Um, there are some maybe videos you can still, if you look it up, uh, you can see some gameplay videos, uh, which might be still available somewhere. Um, but um, so what it is, it, it, we designed the game as uh, basically that you uh, steer a boat and you go through different kind of navigational challenges. I think, you know, you have different levels uh, where you need to find different boys and find them in a certain order. And before some levels, you get a map, which tells you where these boys are, and others you don't. You have to find out where they are. And in some levels, you will have good visibility, so you can see landmarks, which are very important for orientation and navigation. And in some, we have what we call fog levels. So there is a fog, and you can't actually see that much where, where you're going. And so with these levels, we challenge people on different aspects. Um, but as I said, we designed it, all the game design in the background was really based on the science. So for each game level layout, we know exactly what people are looking at at each part of the game, which landmarks they would be using or could use, how much they would travel, how they should find the path. And that is, um, as I said, we spent an awful lot of time on that, um, which was very, very challenging. But that's, that's the boring bit. But on the outside, it's really just you play this game find the boys, you can earn as many stars as you want, you can personalize your boat, you know, which is completely irrelevant to the science, but we've as scientists found very quickly, of course, that the games companies told them, well, that's what people want, that makes them excited, if they can do their own, they change the color of their boat or have their own flag or whatever, mm -hmm. and also how many stars they have, and if they can share it on social media, and we realized we were really naive, frankly, with all these gamification techniques, of course, you know, because so they're completely irrelevant for the for the actual science, but um, for the success of the game, they were absolutely critical. And also to make clear to people that even with playing the game very short amount of time, so we made it really specific that I think even if people just played five minutes, that would sufficient, generate sufficient research data for us. And that was really important. So, you know, spend, I think that's why the slogan was in the end, gaming for good. You just spend five minutes a day on this game and you actually help dementia research. And people love that, you know, they can really see having fun playing this game and at the same time, they're helping dementia research. So this was another, sorry, I'm going on here, but this was another collateral type thing which came out, which we never think, that it became actually a huge public engagement exercise. So we never, re we reached people we would have never reached. So usually when you talk about dementia, people think, oh, this is for old people. But instead, we had so many younger people, of course, playing games that they could find out and they could really relate how this relates to their you know, parents or grandparents or for their own life. And that was uh, just an enormous 
side effects. Again, we never designed it for that, but it just opened our eyes to the possibilities using games for that purpose. Now, you mentioned the size of the data set and then some of the gamification features. Has any of the research gone into which bits were most effective, which game elements? Yeah, so we haven't even gone into that yet. That's that's the most bizarre thing. So we're really looking at <laughs> the data is so huge. We have so we've written now several kind of studies on this, but um, I think one there is really an, an you know if you want to be involved in this, please be my guest. If you have spare time, then um, I would love to look at this. Which ones exactly were the most effective? What really motivated people? And we could look at that. We can look at this across countries, across genders, across ages, because we have such a huge data set. Uh, we have data for nearly 160 countries, so it's huge. And that's, that was one of the other kind of collateral findings that uh, many of the aspects, how not, the game was not designed for that, but we could actually look at really interesting factors which might determine how people um, navigate. So for example, we answered the question, if men and women really navigate differently? You know, there's always this urban myth out there. And we thought, well, we could answer actually this question now, you know, and do they really navigate differently? And the short answer is yes, they do. But the long answer is very long, I'm afraid. So basically what we found out is that it's all dependent on the gender parity in the country actually people come from. So where there's a bigger gender parity in countries, women and men navigate more similarly, where there's a bigger gender um, difference, they're actually quite split and men usually outperform women. So it's a really interesting finding in, in itself. We never designed for that as well. But you see, that is the, the, I guess, the richness of the data, which allows you to look at those um, questions. So do you think this one data set is going to keep you busy for the next 20 years or will you be creating more? Well, we are creating more. So we're working on lots of different projects, but it will keep us busy. You know, but that's why I think that's why we realized as well very quickly we need to make it open access and we really want people to use it and analyze it and, you know, use the data because we will not be able to really go to the depth of it. But if people want to look at certain aspects like the gamification, as you just said, or I don't know, look at learning effects, as I said, performance effects, uh, people can do that. At the moment, the problem with we are really having is that we don't have enough resources for this. So this has been our general struggle in terms of the research funding world is still very conservative in this regard. And we have found it very, very hard to find uh, funding for further analysis, but also for further game development, which is pretty incredible. Now we're having really incredible findings coming out from the game. And there is a very big paper actually coming out at the end of March, uh, coming out um, I guess this is published after, isn't it? Yeah, this <laughs> yeah, should be. Yeah, I don't know if you know scientific journals, but there is, we have a, a publication coming out in Nature, basically, which will be very big in that sense. So we will have, hopefully, this will change the tide towards this, because I still think it has enormous potential, but we need to really convince the scientific community and the scientific funders that this is really a valid way of doing science. But very novel and that's why it's a challenge for them. I have a couple of things I want to pick up there. One is 
the idea being that certain cultures and their approach to the perception of gender roles and gender positioning can result in the change in visual spatial kind of ability um that is absolutely incredible and fascinating i, I would love to uh, not that this episode is about that but that's one point the other is that often for any research the real fear is being underpowered and so often it is because recruitment's challenging and certain criteria on who it is i mean you went out smashed out of the park by what 40 50 fold over what even that number of a hundred thousand you plucked out of the air um (laughs) (laughs) which it's not it's not unheard of as an approach to looking at uh, how to power appropriately a study um but if the idea of that was just recruitment for a research study and the big challenge we have often with any self-management any intervention is just individuals actually utilizing and engaging with the intervention if you make something fun, people will do it. Um, it is a bit disheartening, the fact that you've had struggles to find funding for further game development and analysis. I really hope the publication in Nature makes a big difference. Beyond that, what I want to dig into is kind of evidently you see there's a purpose of games and you're looking for new ways to develop new ones. What do you think the future holds for gamification in dementia? What do you think the future holds for gamification in health generally? Uh, and what have you seen happening out there that you're very excited by? Yes, um, well... Big question, of course. I think I'm not, I'm not sure I can speak for health in general, but for dementia, I think we barely scratched the surface. <laughs> there is just uh, such an enormous amount we could do. Um, but I think we need to be quite careful with distinguishing people pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis. I think this will be... So a lot of the pre-diagnosis, I think the prevention side, it would be an absolute key aspect and for me, of course, what the data that's coming out and wh- where we're doing now a lot of work as well is that lifestyle, of course, changes to lifestyle makes a huge difference to your future uh, dementia risk. The problem is that you really need to change your habits. And I think gamification and games are perfect for that, as you say. It's really that people love doing this and it's fun changing it, basically, without you really knowing that you change yourself, I think. It keeps you just engaged instead of somebody telling you, oh, you should be doing this. No, it's all the, you know, uh, kind of self-motivation, which is key aspect. And I think, so we're, we're trying to work on this and really find, you know, looking at this, because I think dementia these days is always seen as a disease of middle age affecting old age. So it's really the earlier you start, the better. And that affects myself, frankly. So I need to be careful myself. Then post-diagnostic, I think helping and supporting people with dementia is absolute key. And there are no much more developments happening in terms of supporting them. The element, I think, that has been really overlooked, well, maybe not overlooked, but less looked into, is uh, the, the carers or the families of people with dementia. Because the further people go into into the dementia um, the less they will be able to engage themselves. Just by their cognitive capacity it will be very challenging for them to do any gamification or any, any kind of tasks. So it's much more about the carers or the families to support them and help them with a journey through dementia. And I think gamification could be huge for that, for care education, for symptom management, for anything like that, which we use it already in healthcare in so many aspects, but I really haven't seen that as much in in dementia. So I'd love to I'd love to see that because those are the people really, you know, at the front line and they really have a tough, tough time. If we could give them some enjoyment via games and gamification, at the same time give them a support, 
uh, I think everybody wins, I would say. Yeah, I completely agree. What I also know is designing games for people over 50, over 60, over 70 and beyond. You've mentioned that your data sets, a load of younger people took part in Sierra Quest. But was there a certain approach to designing the games that you looked into, given the age group who don't traditionally play games or didn't back, especially five years ago? What was it you as a team kind of use of the framework or kind of thought through when designing the game? Yeah, we thought about this a lot uh, because, you know, at that time when we launched Sierra Quest is a few years now back, um, it was still quite different, you know, and it was seen the gaming is, you know, for, I guess, young white man type approach, you know, and we wanted to avoid that, of course, at all costs, that we wanted to have a, a kind of quite an even distribution across genders and uh, also uh, across age. And the gender is a, is a really big thing in that sense as well, because as you both know, in the games world, you know, it's more that the women usually like more the puzzle games and the men like more the chasing or whatever games. So you need to find this combination between the two if you want to really cater to them. Then you have the whole age aspect, uh, which I think, again, I think we need to distinguish between pre and post COVID because after, after COVID, people have become so technologically savvy. I feel that a lot of the technological barriers to in age have actually been removed. Um, we've seen only that people over 85 really start to struggle now uh, with technology. And I think the key is to make everything touchscreen dependent. So I still remember quite a few years back when we did computerized tasks in older people and it was a complete nightmare because it was all keyboard and mouse based. Once the touchscreens came in, it was it changed everything and it just made it much more intuitive so for zero cost we we were already we were, oh, it was very clear for us it needed to be touchscreen based it needed to be visually uh, as uh, clear in terms of contrast that people also could play it it's that people could switch off the sound because older people found the sound very annoying while the younger people really loved to have the little sound in the background always running um but the main thing we spent an awful lot of time on was the controls, actually. If we could, uh, for example, how you move the boat. So, for example, some there was an aspect where the people needed to press down all the time on the screen to move the boat and then just slide it. But actually, we found out very quickly that older people really didn't like it, especially those with arthritis, obviously. They really felt it just hurt them and they didn't want to play it. Instead, they prefer to tap it and um, you know, or how you can increase the kind of boost function. But it was, a, it was a kind of at that time, it was a some aspects where really we took punt, frankly, and just, you know, saw whether it would work or not. We did a lot of user testing, but still we didn't know until we released it. And these days there are some aspects that would change as always. You know, hindsight is 2020, obviously. So we would know much better how not to design it. And that's why I wish we had more funding to do more exciting things. But um, I think those are really um, aspects you need to think about. What are the kind of, in particular, what are the common physical ailments in, in aging? And most of them are related to vision and motor function, uh, which most people will have, and hearing loss, of course, which will really determine quite a lot how they might inter interact with, uh, with the game or gamification. Well, those are really important insights, all of them. <laughs> are you surprised? No, I'm joking. No, I'm not surprised, <laughs> but I'm thinking Ben's probably been through some of this with Good Boost with his target audience as well. Pretty sure you mentioned touchscreens as well, Ben. 
Yeah, I mean, we've designed our own, own tablet computers uh, to make sure, not not just for an older adult audience, but to make sure that we work with majority people over 60. Um, and there's no way, the only interface that they could use is a tablet. Because um, we work in a lot of swimming pools, we've had to design our own tablet computers. But what we work on now is another project involving gamification in the water for falls prevention. And again, is how do you make sure the hardware is appropriate? And you can put all the time in the game, but actually people can use the hardware in the way that works for them, that feels intuitive to them you can have the best software on the planet it's inaccessible anyway um so I completely hear what you're saying michael in terms of those learnings that process of, of creating the game designing the game to the point where you went okay now we're going to push to production what was the timeline in that from ideation through to pressing the bell button to go live yes oh wow um <laughs> so as you know as scientists we're we're very slow people in general so you know industry moves very fast Science was very, very slow. Um, and this was a challenge because one of our main funders was industry, the main funder of Zero Quest. So they set us very tight deadlines. So the whole process was six, seven months. But you can see as scientists, we are at the end, well, we were still not happy, obviously. We were never happy. Um, but uh, we could have developed it further. But we knew at that stage, it was uh, at a stage where we could really release it. And the great thing is, of course, working with industry, the number of people behind, especially like the games company or the, the funder, was enormous uh, contrast to us researchers who work in very small groups. So they had the manpower as well to deliver it in that time frame. And we just needed to really, I guess, design it and really come up with the major aspects. I think um, there's no good answer. I think it all depends how you want to, what you want to develop as a game. That's what I learned very quickly. Is it 2D? Is it 3D? Is it uh, single player? Is it multiplayer? Is it, you know, standard, I don't know, desktop or tablet VR, immersive VR, AR? All those aspects will just really make a huge difference to your development uh, timeline. So that's the other thing. I think I still would love to develop, for example, a multiplayer game, a cross-generational multiplayer game for people, older people or people with dementia would be fantastic. But it's, of course, vastly complex multiplayer games to develop them but we even think about the budget for that but um you know it would be a fantastic kind of thing to to do funnily enough i was about to ask you that if you had the funding what would you develop <laughs> there you go you but, know, but no, that's really interesting there i guess i'm guess i'm pretty sure there aren't that many multiplayer games being used for scientific research no there aren't because the problem is as well you need to of course think about all the you know, the interactions, what people do and how do they react. So you could do it with an avatar. That's that's usually what people then do. So they do multiplayer games versus with avatars. So then you can program the avatar to react in a certain way. But if you use multiplayer games with humans, it's very difficult to start to control actually what's happening. And that makes the science much more unpredictable and harder. But I guess more ecological, that's the, that's the aspect. Maybe it's not for measuring more things, but I think in particular for an intervention level, I think it could be really great because the social aspect of course is so huge as always, and especially being part of a peer group or not only having a huge multiplayer game, but you could even just do a game with a, one mentor or something like this, or somebody you play with, something you know it's just remotely done um yeah i think that would be fascinating to develop something in that direction i would love that i think so too because obviously in the real world and gamification is about impacting people in the real world 
we're social animals. And yet all these science of the games are aimed at one player. So how accurate are the results? Whereas if we had a multiplayer game, I'm feeling like uh, it would be more realistic results, even if it is harder to analyze. And But with a big enough data set, and this is what got me excited. <laughs> Well, it depends always what you want what you want to look at, I guess, you know. If you want to look at social interactions, you would have to do this. But if you just want to look at a certain process, like we want to look at the navigation process, well, you could. we wanted people not to be influenced by other players uh, because you could have somebody tell them, oh, you need to go here, but then that would kind of, I guess, you know, make their results invalid. So you need to be quite careful how you how you balance that out, I think. Yeah, that's the key aspect. But I agree with you. I think how to, having multiplayer games would be fascinating. Um, we also, I should say, we also created a, in the end, the funder created, we created as well an immersive VR version actually of Hero Quest, which we haven't still published on at all <laughs> because it became another kind of project, a side project with different levels, but it was then using the, the Samsung Gear VR, which was the mostly distributed headset. So resolution-wise, of course, not as great as the Oculus sets or anything like that. But that, uh, again, we were, again, blown away. A much smaller data set, but I think we have data in around 30,000 people in immersive VR with a much higher resolution. But we haven't even touched that yet. I think that's the other aspect. It's all very good to have big data, but big data itself creates its problems and you need to have really the resources then also to analyze it. And that's, you know, one aspect. So it sounds like you need to gamify getting people to analyze the data, which is a thing, isn't it? So uh, it could, of course. And there are lots of approaches, you know? Yeah, exactly. You, know? you can create a game to get people to analyze it. Well, you know, the, the, I don't know if you know, you know, the folded game, which is, you know, that was, even though, of course, it seems now, Google DeepMind has solved that already anyway with their algorithms that so you don't need it anymore. But, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I agree. You know, to analyze data, that would be, that's fantastic. And that's, of course, a lot done in, in terms of citizen science and gamification, obviously. Uh, and I completely agree on the social side. And it's something that we've been working on as well in terms of creating virtual peer groups, supporting each other and their rehab. One of our next steps is to go create virtual games within these virtual group peer groups as part of people's exercise and rehabilitation. But from the focus groups we've been running, the desire for that and how appealing that is, is off the chart compared to the idea of just doing your own self-intervention at home in your bedroom by yourself. But yeah, uh, without a doubt, we're hiring exactly the same things. Uh, in that case, think of the wider realms of gamification. I know you, you're focusing in, in dementia, but where do you think it could lead us as scientists, as healthcare professionals, as patients and people living with conditions? What do you think a world that's better gamified could look like? Yes, well, I think um, there's always, I think it's always a balance to strike, isn't it, for for these kind of things. But f I think for me, it's um, because on the one hand, you don't want to gamify everything in life, you know, because <laughs> it could be not as much fun, even though we're talking about gamification and I love it. But I think some aspects you can't really or maybe shouldn't gamify as much. But I think for health, I think it's, I think in particular for aspects where you really want to change, as I said before, I want to change your habits or anything like that. That is really great for your health. And um, the same for education. I think education has, well, it's already shown as a huge, huge benefit. And for health, we only started really with that. 
not only educating patients or their families, but also, of course, healthcare professionals. And that's really, you know, much more common now used in, in health education um, that we can teach people just so much better uh, what they want to do. So I hope there's much more uh, in that sense. What else? Well, I, I wish, of course, there would be more games itself. You know, I'd, I'd love them, you know, to to see more maybe casual games being really used for science. Because, uh, as I said, people really have not done that uh, so far as much. And um, I hope we can convince them that there is, you know, there's definitely huge scope to develop something in that direction. I mean, having four million people use the game is a good example, but do you have anything currently cooking as a project, something you're working on right now that you'd be happy to share or something that you're planning in the future? Yes, at the moment, um, well, we're working on several things, but um, one is very much related to lifestyle changes. So uh, where we're looking at in terms of how can we, and it is much more gamification when we work with behavioral scientists, how we can actually change people's behaviors uh, towards healthy alternatives, because we know that it can be so huge for the risk reduction. So people don't always underestimate this, but basically if you change your lifestyle, you can reduce the risk by for dementia by up to 40%. It's huge. It's massive. No medication can do that. Um, but how do you convince people to do that? That's the, that's the key aspect. So we're looking at certain risk groups and how we can actually uh, change them. And the beauty of it is we can, of course, use C-HeroQuest as an outcome measure for this as well. So that's the, you know, then it's, I think it's fantastic that we can combine then the two approaches, one an intervention and then one as an outcome measure or potential diagnostic. Um, but yeah. I'm also developing, I think, more a kind of a clinical version of C-Hero Quest. That's the other big thing we're working on. So this is not a game anymore, but this is then really more a task that clinicians could use in the clinic, which is gamified. And that really, because at the moment there was still this huge confusion that people, you know, would send us emails. Oh, I've played the game. Uh, what is my diagnosis type thing? And, you know, which we said, well, <laughs> you don't get a diagnosis. But we can see that, um, and we, I don't want to go down the self-diagnosis route. I don't think it's it's a good thing personally. So instead, uh, I think it's to develop something more for the healthcare professionals to use as a much more sensitive and specific measure, which is still maybe fun for people to do and then um, potentially diagnose them earlier. That's more like the gamified tasks you were talking about earlier. Correct. But exactly. a fun, really fun version. <clears throat> In terms of the preventative games you're thinking about, are you thinking more about gamifying it for mindset change so people think about their lifestyle choices differently or more about actually getting them to change a particular task or activity that day? Because I'm really interested in which one might have more effect. Well, um, I think I think it's both, isn't it? That's it's not I don't know. It's not or it's and <laughs> so often, you know, it's um, you have to change. I think people doing things without being really believing in it, you realize they never will buy into it. They need to buy into it. But it's this kind of interaction of the two for me. So people, you need to motivate them to do things. And ideally, you show them this via senses or whatever that, you know, they get rewards via that. And it's rewarding. And at the same time, change their mindset, which will kind of reinforce actually to pursue this. The thing is, how do you keep them engaged? Because, of course, we as humans, that's one of our problems, that we become so bored so quickly. And that's a, a really a key aspect. And again, see, because we learned a lot with this, 
we did a hole that we've released new levels, you know, after six months and that hole, which basically were just levels where we exactly measured the same thing. It's just the skin or the look changed completely. And but people loved it. They came back, they played more. Happy days. And I think that's that's how you kind of um, what we would call, you know, in because more biomedically, we would call this treatment compliance or treatment adherence. How do people adhere to that? And that's really critical for the success. But for me, it's both that people need to see what they do and doing is also changing and at the same time tackling the mindset and then both reinforce each other. That's um, what I would say. So more complicated and once again, a bigger task. I'm sorry, Pete, I'm not giving you an easy answer here. There you go, but that's it. Oh, I don't disagree. I just think, it, you know, there might potentially be different games. That's what I was thinking. Like one might lead into the other. Yes, or it could be, of course, levels you unlock in the same game, you see. Ah, there's an insight. I like that. <laughs> there you go. You know, and we had these as well, where you have only, you can only unlock these special levels whatever and that gains you this and this it's uh that's really then but it's you really go into games then go away from a task-based gamification to really designing a game and as I said, you know this is not me of course this is the game designers knew this notice for many many years you know and that's what i've learned from working with game designers who are really brilliant at that and incredibly clever uh, Michael, it's been great to have you on the show today to talk about creating games that appeal to a much wider adult audience than just male, but also particularly with older adults. Um, the importance of distinction between creating casual games and gamification for the purpose of task and making gamification proper science, even though it does have to involve a lot of feasibility study publications as a result. Uh, it's been great having you on the show today and thank you so much for your time and we wish you all the best with gamification in dementia, see here request and beyond. Oh, thank you so much for having me.